Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hi, everyone. And fourth-year medical student, Yasmin Dakama. Hi, Yasmin. Hello. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, in this episode, we're going to discuss dignity therapy. And to do that, we're very honored to have with us Dr. Harvey Chachanoff. Dr. Chachanoff is a psychiatrist and distinguished professor at the University of Manitoba and senior scientist at Cancer Care Manitoba Research Institute. His seminal publications addressing psychosocial dimensions of palliation have helped define core competencies and standards of end of life care. He's the co-founder of the Canadian Virtual Hospice, which is the world's largest repository of web-based information and support for dying patients, their families, and healthcare providers. His book, Dignity Therapy, Final Words for Final Days, was a 2011 winner of the Prose Award. He's the co-editor of the Handbook of Psychiatry and Palliative Medicine. And in 2020, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. His latest book, just released, is Dignity and Care, the Human Side of Medicine. Dr. Chachanoff, Harvey, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Uh, first question, I, just what is dignity therapy and what led you to develop it? What was the need? Oh, my goodness. Um, it's a, a brief question that uh, kind of launches me into a uh, what is, was, has been a long journey. Um, but maybe to try and um, uh, abbreviate that somewhat, let me begin by saying dignity therapy is a brief individual individualized psychotherapy that we design specifically for patients with life-threatening and life-limiting conditions. Um, by, by way of background, we had been doing some research uh, on the area uh, of dignity. Um, and, and in fact, one of the reasons we launched into that is we discovered that, at least uh, according to Dutch physicians, the reasons why patients were seeking out um, a hasten death was because of a lost sense of dignity more so than any other reason. So it gave us a clue to the fact that people were dying um, as a result of feeling that their dignity somehow was being undermined or compromised, at least according to the physicians who helped them. So that launched us into a, a large program of research on the issue of dignity. During the course of that research, we discovered that at least according to some mm -hmm. patients, this issue of, of generativity, the idea that, you know, part of what might undermine their sense of dignity towards the end of life is a feeling that their life hasn't made a difference or they haven't left a, a, a ripple effect. They're, there's not going to be here to be able to look after the well-being of their, of their loved ones. So dignity therapy then was constructed based on an empirical model of dignity in the terminally ill. So we had a, a theoretical framework that had been developed and informed by patients. And based on that model, we developed this brief psychotherapy. Um, we knew because of the importance of generativity 
that this needed to create something lasting. So we knew that this conversation, this psychotherapy, if you will, would be recorded and transcribed and create a permanent legacy document. In other words, something that would even transcend the event of death. So that was the, we knew that was the form of dignity therapy. The content of dignity therapy, again, informed by the model is people wanted to talk about things related to personhood, you know, what defines them? So what are their important roles? What are their accomplishments? You know, what are the their important values and beliefs, uh, relationships and the like? Um, and then finally, so we have the, the, the form, we have the content, and then the tone of dignity therapy, again, informed by the model, was what we called uh, care tenor. Um, and this is the idea that we need to very much sort of uh, in the spirit of people like uh, Carl Rogers, sort of unconditional, positive regard, um, being non-judgmental. And so to put all of that together, what we do in dignity therapy is we invite a patient with a, a limited life uh, expectancy to engage in this conversation in which we ask about some things that are biographical, some things that are more uh, about their values, about things that they would want others to know. In other words, if this is the if this is your last opportunity to let people know what needs to be said, what do you want to say? We guide them through this conversation, um, and then we go off and transcribe it. We edit it, and then we return it to the patient for them to bequeath to a family member or loved one. So that, in a very brief and succinct way, is you know what twenty years worth of of research and experience has me tell you, at least as the first foray, what is dignity therapy? That's tremendous. And I feel like exploring the definition of dignity is so complex as well as dignity therapy itself. I did want to note something that I felt was so well outlined in your book that your first book on dignity therapy and exploring how your team looked at patient-centered studies and conducted patient-centered studies as a team and identified primary sources on what influences a patient with terminal illness's um, sense of dignity. And I just wanted to note very briefly that you guys found three primary sources, and one was illness-related concerns, which included the yes. patient's experience of independence and symptom distress. And your second was dignity-conserving repertoire, which was psychological and spiritual factors that can influence a person's sense of dignity. And the third source is influenced by these external factors of um, which was termed social dignitary, dignity inventory and includes one's person, Correct. excuse me, one's experience of privacy boundaries, social support, care tenor, which you discussed, burden to others and aftermath concerns. And I found that very um insightful that there's like these intrinsic factors and these extrinsic factors that come to play. And really, I wanted to hear a little more about your work's arc and all of this research that you and your team has con have conducted and how um, some pivotal, like I wanted to ask what pivotal elements of your life and training contributed to your passion and work in Dignity Therapy. Mm, again, another uh, another wonderful question, and it, and it has me reflecting back on a, on a career that uh, now has 
spanned. I mean, it, hard for me to believe, but it has indeed spanned 35 years. I guess, you know, during the course of my training in psychiatry, um, I uh, early on came to the realization that when it came to the care for uh, patients with malignant illness, and at this point I was doing my rotations on CL psychiatry and working a lot in the area of oncology. And that's you know, consult liaison psychiatry for listeners. Exactly. Um, and um, I took note of the fact that there wasn't a lot of attention being paid to the uh, to the psychological dimensions of, uh, of patient experience. And it was really um, on, on the heels of that realization that I went off to uh, do a fellowship with uh, Dr. Jimmy Holland who, um, again, for, for listeners, is someone who is considered the founder uh, and, a, and a world pioneer in the area of psychosocial oncology or psycho-oncology as it's being coined. And this has become really a, a, an international movement. Um, again, when I, looking just for, for pivotal moments, I mean, when I returned to Winnipeg to begin uh, my work, at first, uh, at least the research that I was doing was very much in the uh, tradition of contemporary traditional psychiatry. So I was I mean, trained as a clinician. I was interested in things like syndromal depression, and I was interested in anxiety disorders. Uh, I was also interested in the whole notion of what we call desire for death or, or will to live. You know, what, what sustains someone's sense of wanting to go on uh, versus feeling that, you know, they want life to be over sooner. So we did a whole series of, of projects that we're looking at what I call the experiential landscape of end-of-life care. But then at, at some point, and again, I think it was very much informed by those studies that were coming out of the Benelux countries and looking why were you know, these Dutch patients seeking out death. And when loss of dignity came out so highly cited, it occurred to us that, you know, we can find ourselves trapped inside of this at the time DSM-3 box, you know, and it's it's an intriguing box it's an informative box but it's confining um and so what we realized is that we needed to extend beyond those kind of traditional areas of psychiatric inquiry knowing that things like dignity um you know the spiritual the the existential dimensions of end-of-life experience have a profound influence on something as fundamental as do I still want to be alive? I mean, do, do I want to wake up to see uh, another day? So um, that then led to, and, and this really kind of uh, goes back to your comment on, you know, well, what is dignity? You know, I mean, when when these studies were done in in, in Holland and in Belgium, I mean, although they asked, and again, this is primarily uh, clinicians that we, we still don't have patient level data at this point. I mean, when we came into this, there was no data on dignity from the patient vantage point. Mm. And so, uh, I mean, everybody cited dignity. It, it was all over the literature, but they cited it the same way you would cite a trump card. It's your, it's your ultimate argument. So if you say you're for assisted suicide, you say it's a dignity issue. This is about autonomy. It's my body, my life, my choice. And if you're against assisted suicide, you say 
the Hippocratic Oath, the taking of life. This is an affront to human dignity. And we said, you know, we're not kind of experts in moral philosophy and we're not, we don't have a political stake in this game. We want, I mean, we want to understand how to do a better job of looking after people who are facing imminent death. And so we then said, well, you know, if, if dignity is coming out with this strong signal, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis what physicians are saying, we need to speak to patients. And that's when we did some of those early studies. And you cited one of the, you know, I think, I mean, it's not the earliest study. There was actually a quantitative study that we did earlier on that was published in uh, The Lancet. We got people to basically rate their sense of, of, of dignity. But the, the qualitative study is one that uh, was, was highly informative. That, yeah, I would love to comment a bit on this excellent study that you and your team did. And it was one of the first empirical studies to examine the concept of dignity from the perspective of dying patients. And you guys as a team, I think this was really laid a foundation for the work that stemmed from this study. You guys as a team found that 91% of participants being satisfied with dignity therapy, 76 reported a heightened sense of dignity, 68% reported an increased sense of purpose, an increased sense of meaning, and 47% reported an increased will to live. And another 81% reported that it has been helpful to their family as well. And so all of these had great statistical significant findings and um, really laid that foundation for the work that you guys continue to build on. Yeah, that those are actually the figures from the... Uh, uh from the first study and again as as, as i was just uh, saying the 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 creation of dignity therapy is is based on the model and the model actually helps us understand how to understand the notion of dignity so but getting back to dignity therapy the psychotherapeutic intervention you know the the, the first study was a phase 1 study it was done here in in Canada and Australia um and we enrolled i think it was 100 patients all of whom were you know within 6 months of dying all enrolled in palliative care um about 80% of them had end stage cancer uh with an average age in the uh, in the early 70s and as you point out i mean it was, you know, very highly uh, embraced by uh, the, uh, the the participants. The, the interesting thing is that, and again, you know, th that first study, I mean, again, goes back, you know, I don't know if it's 15 years at, at least, uh, you're nodding your head. So yes, at, at least 15 years. But in the meantime, um, I mean, worldwide, there have been studies now on, on dignity therapy and at least, uh, you know, what I can uh, discern is that there are probably about a, at least about a hundred papers now on dignity therapy and about what I, I mean, by last count, there were about 10 systematic uh, reviews of dignity therapy. And the outcomes uh, essentially say that, you know, depending on the outcome measure you use and the cohort you study, dignity therapy seems to um, enhance end of life experience. In, in more distressed patients, dignity therapy and randomized control trials has been shown to mitigate depression, anxiety, and desire for death. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're here with Dr. Harvey Chachanov, and we're talking about dignity therapy. I, I want to ask, so this is very high percentages of satisfaction, gaining meaning in life. 
how long is dignity therapy? How, and how many sessions, how long does it take to get this kind of result? Uh, maybe question. maybe even describe um, what, what would it be like, kind of a, like an actual session, maybe what, what would that look like? Sure. Well, you know, um, why don't why don't I describe somebody who is uh, I think you know I think this was my most recent patient and um, I mean and, and for some strange reason um, I have been doing more dignity therapy throughout COVID than the entirety of my career, so may, maybe wow. there is something about COVID and issues related to isolation and kind of the dehumanization of of medicine and I mean we could speculate but for some reason I've been seeing more dignity therapy during these last few years than ever before so let me describe the process with this last patient that I saw uh, because I, I think it's uh, it, it's 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 both poignant and illustrative of what dignity therapy is and what it could do so I, I received a referral uh, to see this patient. Um, she is somebody who was in her uh, late 20s, um, somebody who had been married for just over a year, um, had a young child, less than one year old, um, and had uh, metastatic disease. Um, when I received the referral uh, from uh, her clinician, um, I uh, contacted the patient. Um, found out whether or not there were any uh, questions about dignity therapy, what she understood about dignity therapy, and then did what I call a framing interview. So uh, if you think about dignity therapy as creating a picture, uh, and essentially, I mean, we want to leave a picture behind of who we were, you know, what we stood for, you know, and what we wanted people to remember and know. So if you're going to create a picture in a relatively short period of time, I mean, metaphorically, you need a frame. So the framing interview that I did with her, you know, basically asked questions like, well, how do you like to be addressed? You know, are you single or married? Um, the names of the significant people uh, in your life. I ask a little bit about the illness, not copious detail about the illness, but enough so that I know what kind of language she feels comfortable with. Um, in terms of her own uh, prognostic expectations. Um, and in, in this instance, I mean, she was somebody who was very well aware that, you know, time remaining was short. And so we could comfortably use that kind of language without being sort of, you know, emotionally assaultive or insensitive. Um, besides that, I will also ask about what is your agenda? What do you, what do you hope to achieve in doing Doing this, and uh, I mean that may sound like an odd question to you, but it's very helpful. Some people, I mean, and in her instance, I mean, it was sort of one of the kind of dignity therapy that is sort of, in some ways, the most straightforward. Because what she wanted to do was to tell her story, um, say things so that her young daughter would have some memory of who her mother was, um, share some wisdom of what she had learned, share her hopes and wishes and dreams for her daughter, for her husband. Um, specifically, people are asked, you know, are there any words that you would like to, are there things that need you need to say or want to take this moment in time to say again? Because, you know, many people will say, well, you know, I'm always telling them how I love them and I care about, I says, I understand that, but this is an opportunity to say it in a way 
that will be forever preserved. This is something that your children and their children and their children will have an opportunity to look at. So I find out what is your agenda? And, and her agenda, as I say, was, was quite straightforward. Some people have a very different agenda. You know, I, I need to leave an apology. I need to leave an explanation, you know, of mm. feeling that certain things in life uh, went off the rails. I, I remember one mm. older gentleman, and when I asked his agenda, and he had really squandered many relationships, uh, was a poly substance abuser, could never hold down a job. And I, and I asked him, so what is it you're hoping to accomplish in doing this? And he said, I want my grandchildren to know who I was so that they'll follow a different path. Wow. That so dignity therapy, unlike you know, some people think, well, it's, this is just for people who have you know this spectacular story that has to invariably positive and put a smile on life and tie it up with a neat bow. Well, I mean, you're fortunate if life is like that, but life is complicated, and so different people have different agendas, and I want to know what that agenda is so that I can help people to achieve that because we are going to you know, be co-creating this document. So once I have that framing interview, uh, I then say, you know, I will be calling you back and we arrange the next appointment. So this is now session two. Session two uh, needs to take place as soon as possible. Uh, this woman, as it turns out, uh, was at home. So within, you know, the next few days, I was able to arrange a Zoom meeting in between which I will send her all of the dignity therapy question framework. There is no benefit in the element of surprise. You want people to know what we're gonna be talking about so they can kind of think about it. They don't have to prepare anything, but just to kind of get things kind of percolating. Um, another woman, for example, that I spoke to this week, she actually is currently in, in hospital um, in a palliative care unit and said, you know, I'm going to wait until I'm I'm back at home and feeling like I can I can do this. But in this instance of the woman I'm telling you about, we were able to book another session. The session usually takes about an hour um, and I orchestrate it so that it is usually no more than that, because this was originally designed for people who are very close to end of life. We were doing this primarily originally with inpatients when the acuity was so intense, we saw we're going to have to move this to outpatients as well. But by and large, this is an interview that is meant to be done within an hour. About half of that interview, and again, the questions are all available in the public domain if you go to dignityandcare.ca, um, the questions are very much kind of biographical. And it's not so much a, a full story as it is a series of snapshots. Um, you know, what, and, and we oftentimes use a photograph uh, metaphor. You know, if this were a photo album of your life, what are the pages that you would stop me on to say, here's a picture I need to describe? And, and I'll actually use that language. Um, the second half of the interview is less biographical, but in some ways even more evocative because it's really saying, you know, so what are your hopes and dreams for this person you're going to be leaving behind? You know, what are your wishes for them? What have you learned from life that you would like to pass along? What are the words that need to be said? What are special instructions you would like to provide your family to prepare them for a time when you're no, you're no longer here? So we have that conversation. Of course, it is and it is very kind of organic. You know, it's not like a recipe card. You just ask these nine questions, you know, 
mark down the answers and move on. It's very conversational. So, and, and, and it's very much guided by the person's agenda, you know, do we need to talk about that apology or that explanation or, or that something that they feel is critical. Um, so the conversation ends, we hand it over to the um, uh, um, transcriptionist, um, who then as quickly as possible will try and turn that around. It's then edited and I will do the uh, the editing so that you can transform what is a kind of a meandering dialogue into a, a much more pristine narrative. And again, the protocol for editing is described in my book. And then um, at the end, either I will contact them for the third session to read it or, um, and I've been finding more lately, especially with people who are well enough um, and have the wherewithal, I will send it to them uh, by email. They'll look through it. They'll get back to me with any changes or things that need to be discussed. We finalize it, make as many copies as they want, and we send it out to them with my advice that they actually give it to the people they intend to have it as soon as possible, sooner than later. Because if you do it in the here now, it provides openings for conversations and questions and uh, things that can be just as meaningful to express as the document itself. So that's a case example that really illustrates wow. how dignity therapy is done. That really is brief. And such high results and satisfaction, it's almost like an, it's so efficient. And it's almost, it it's now it's made their, the rest of their days very um, like just ready and to, to have these deep connections with the people that they most care about. Gosh. Well, I, I think it helps people attend to this whole notion of, you know, unfinished business. Mm. Um, you know, they, they know that they've said the things that need to be said. I mean, you know, um, I've had patients who've, and this hap has happened many times who have given explicit permission uh, for their partner to find love again, um, that they, the love that they had in their lives would best be honored if this person continued to find fulfillment and meaning, even in another relationship. Oh my gosh, I'm um, going to cry. I had one <laughs> wow. I, I, I had one family member tell me that the only time she ever heard her father say that he loved her was within the context of reading that document. Mm, so wow. the disclosures are profound. They, they are nothing short of profound. Can I ask you, what is the impact to the clinician? It's, it's this deep, sounds like a deeply satisfying experience in a lot of ways, but it's also, it can be very, very, very sad. You know, it is, although, and, and maybe, you know, I've been doing this work for, for so many years. I mean, when I finished with that most recent patient, um, and again, you know, the, uh, the details, you know, are around that particular case are, you know, as tragic as you can imagine, you know, young people, young marriage, young love, young children, and, you know, stage four metastatic breast cancer. But, and again, I mean, the, the overwhelming feeling that I had was um, I was in awe of her ability to use this opportunity and milk it for everything that it could possibly be. I mean, uh, yes, of course, I mean, I can't change the tragedy of her circumstances, but 
she used this therapeutic opportunity to let the people around her know how she felt about them and how she loved them and her wishes to guide them in a future without them and and guidance for this you know young you know less than one year old child who will you know long you know uh, outlive her mother um so it was it was extraordinary so it takes you from a position of sadness and helplessness and really, you know, I, I think empowers you to do something that is so critical. And in fact, I mean, the feeling sometimes I have when, you know, we'll get a referral and, you know, they deteriorate too quickly for us to get to the dignity therapy is, you know, what a lost opportunity, you know, too bad that we couldn't have intervened sooner. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Sight. Today, we talked about dignity therapy with Dr. Harvey Chachanoff. Harvey, thank you for joining us for this episode. My pleasure. And, and thank you also to our co-hosts, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi and Yasmin Dakama. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. And if you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. Thanks, Yasmin. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. All right, and this begins the extended version. I've, I've, I have so many questions. I hope I, I, it's okay that I asked um, one of the first extended Please. show questions. So, um, it, it, you know, going into this, what you, you saw this need, the need for dignity, the need to, to, to go to patients and ask them what dignity means to them. It seems like you've, 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 you've developed all these things that now can be transferred, not just to end of life sessions. That's my, that's my thought. Like I, I see a lot of um, folks in the counseling center who are kind of lost, don't have meaning, don't have deep connection, have not said a lot of things that are important and meaningful. It, it, do you feel like this can be now brought to just regular psychotherapy and it, it doesn't need to be all only in the context of end of life and palliative care? Yeah, no, I, I think there's uh, there's tremendous potential. I mean, over time, dignity therapy has moved beyond the immediacy of end of life. Um, so it is being used for patients with, you know, chronic conditions. Um, it has been used earlier in the trajectory of, of cancer illness. Um, mm -hmm. I, I myself is all, has all, have also done studies where it's being used in, the, uh, in, in seniors who aren't necessarily uh, imminently dying, but who are certainly in their more senior years. So um, I, I do think that it has uh, and, and could have those kinds of applications. Um, also, I mean, dignity therapy is something that I think of as being very um, affirming, you know, it, I mean, it is saying you are important, what you think is important, you matter. Um, and so um, when you start to think about other cohorts of individuals for whom mattering is challenging, um, you know, you think about other patients, you know, with psychiatric challenges, you think about patients who are dealing with um, uh, substance abuse. You think about mm -hmm. people who are, are struggling with a, a variety of emotional issues that might under, under, uh, undermine their sense of, of worth or their sense of agency. You know, so I, I wonder, you know, might dignity therapy be uh, a therapeutic approach that could be used in a variety of populations for whom meaning and purpose is, is being challenged? And if I, I believe, 
there, I mean, I think there have been some attempts to introduce dignity therapy for psychiatric populations. There's a, a study, I can't remember the first author, but you know, it, it'd be worth looking up in the literature, dignity therapy, uh, psychiatry, I'm sure uh, we, can, we can find the reference. So, um, which is, all of which is to say that, well, it was developed as a end of life palliative intervention. Um, it, it's finding its way into other areas that extend beyond imminence of dying. Do you, have you seen any um, patterns in terms of where the focus tends to go in these sessions between um, like kids with terminal illness versus um, more elderly with terminal illness? Um Dignity therapy was designed as a uh, as an adult intervention, and I mean, primarily all of my work, uh, all of my uh, work in, in um, palliative care has been in adult populations. Uh, that being said, there have been adaptations of of dignity therapy for children. Um, Miguel Julio is a is a colleague of mine from Portugal. Um, uh, he has published, and I think I was a co-author on that paper, I'm quite sure, uh, but he has published um, uh, variations of dignity therapy that have been designed for uh, for younger patients and adolescent patients. So um, that's another that's another group that uh, is worth looking at. Um, as far as the, you know, patterns or, or variability, um, Certainly the kind of demographic that I described for you, you know, the young patient who has young family, oftentimes what people uh, at that stage of life are focusing on, and it very much is kind of in this area uh, that uh, Yasmin, you referred to, this, uh, this construct that we called aftermath concerns, uh, which means, you know, I I'm worried about the people that I'm going to leave behind. You know, how can I look after them? And I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing like talking to a young parent who's about to leave a child behind or a young family behind to focus where people want to take their dignity therapy. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, that is certainly a pattern that I've seen. Um, towards the end of life for more um, elderly folk, um, they don't necessarily feel that same kind of sense of, of dependency. So oftentimes, I mean, it may be more kind of reflections on their life and providing some wisdom to, you know, children and grandchildren that will live beyond them. So I think those are just some general comments around patterns that I've noticed or seen. Do you feel like this has changed you as a person listening to all these folks and the, their best wisdom that what that what life means? Um, it, it, invariably, it, it does. Uh, but I don't know that it's just dignity therapy. I think it's kind of the entirety of, of, of the work. I mean, you know, when I think about it, I mean, for the last 35 years, I mean, every day I am thinking about, reading about, or in the presence of people who are dying. Um, and so it changes, you know, your your outlook, your conversations, uh, you know, what you read about, what you think about. So I, I think it does very much kind of, you know, shape who you are um, and your worldview. The other thing, you know, listen, in, in 35 years, many things happen. Um, and personally, you know, as all of us, uh, certainly of, of this age, 
you know, experiences losses. Um, you know, my, my sister died a number of years ago. Uh, my mother died uh, just this past summer. Um, you know, so, uh, and I was, you know, just doing a, a recent presentation to someone. We were talking to a, a, a public figure who was, you know, looking at issues related to, uh, to palliative care. And I said, you know, well, these issues are, of course, professional um, and academic. They're also deeply personal. You know, we're talking about the way our, our parents are going to die. We're talking about the way our, our partners are going to die. Tragically, in some circumstances, the way our children are going to die and ultimately the way we will die. So I think doing the work just gives you that kind of existential lens, if you will. And being conscious of your time, um, do, do you want to do we, do we all want to go to the next episode? Does that sound yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just so moved by this episode. Thank you so Me much too. for talking to us. I, you know, in the last bit of the 30 minute radio show portion, I, it just really struck me how you were talking about how much life you, there still is in those last moments. And it's like, this offers you, you an opportunity. These patients who are doing dignity therapy are like ringing every day last drop of life out of it out of the last seconds it's just so incredible yeah and sometimes even when there isn't necessarily a lot of life left um you can certainly wring a lot of meaning out mm. of it um and i mean i have seen you know extraordinary things over the years where people in those you know those final days or weeks or month have left something that will you know, leave a permanent mark um, saying, uh, I was here. Uh, this is who yeah, I was. Exactly. Yeah. This is that, what it meant. Mm -hmm. That That's like living, the meaning of living. Oh my gosh. Wow. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, Yaz, did you have any, did you have any more questions? I am just reflecting on your work, uh, Harvey, Dr. Chachnath, and um, incredibly I've enjoyed reading your book. I've enjoyed reading your research. So hearing you talk about the scope of the work has been tremendous. So I, I have, I will always have questions and I will, I'll pause here for now. <laughs> and that concludes this extended version of the show. <laughs>